This week, I announced in a transition announcement video that on May the 24th, we are going to be opening again our sanctuary here on this campus and across our campuses. And some guidelines that we're going to be following uh, for a couple of months as we begin to transition back to Sunday mornings. Now, don't fear if you are... Um, one of those that is not able to attend or for whatever reason won't be with us in the sanctuary on Sunday morning. We're going to continue this um, broadcasting of our sermon on Facebook Live um, on Sunday mornings. And so whether you're with us in person or with us uh, through a video, you'll be a part of the worship and a part of what we're doing. With that said, I also want to say happy Mother's Day to all the mothers. And for those that have mothers, don't forget to call them today. We're um, thankful for you, and your job is tireless and many times thankless. And realizing that these last eight weeks where we have been at home, um, all of that has been magnified. So this Mother's Day, we are especially thankful for you. Well, if you've got your Bibles, this is what I want to do. We're going to start a new series in the book of Esther. Esther is at the end of what we call the historical books of the Old Testament, and it is right before Job. So if you went through 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles, you would find Ezra, Nehemiah, then Esther. Esther comes right before Job. And so if you'll find that, I want to tell you a couple of interesting things about Esther. One of the things that scholars have noted for years about Esther and what makes it unique as a book of the Bible, and particularly a book in the Old Testament, is that in no time in the book of Esther is there any mention of God. There's no mention of miracles. There's no mention of his word or his revelation. There is no vision given it is a book that on the appearance, on the, on the outside, if you were just to glance at it quickly, you would conclude that the time of Esther or Esther and her people, that they are a people that didn't know who God was or acknowledge his presence. And yet, at the same time, that would be a conclusion that would fall short of what the author has intended. You know, one of the questions that we would ask about a biblical book like this, and particularly one with this uniqueness, is, is the absence of God in this book, the apparent absence of God, is it accidental? Or has the author designed literarily a purpose for why he has veiled the activity of God? Well, for many of us, it is... Um, probably there's a time or two in your life, maybe you are there even now, where there is um, apparently the circumstances in your life, you, you, you think and, and feel like, you know what, there, there isn't much evidence of God in my world. There isn't much evidence of God in my life. There isn't much evidence of God in my circumstances, in, in fact, it may be that if, if you, um, you, you find yourself in a crisis of faith and, and wanting to defend God and wanting to cling to God, and yet when you look around, it is so hard to see his activity in your life or so hard to see his activity in the world. And I think that Esther is written in a way to draw us in 
people of faith, to, to draw us in and connect with our story and also connect with a greater story that God is working. If you look at Esther beginning in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 1, I want you to see something. It says this, Now in the days of, of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. You know, if you were wondering who is in control, the, the, the book of Esther, which has no mention of God and no mention of his word and no mention of miracles and no mention of visions, you may be wondering, okay, who is in control? And it's almost as though the author wants to answer the question for you and says, you want to know somebody who's in control? Let me present to you Ahasuerus. We also know Ahasuerus in history as Xerxes, the time of the writing of this book, or at least the events of the book, take place somewhere around 479 B.C. We find out in chapter 2 that most of the events happened somewhere around the seventh year of Ahasuerus, or Xerxes' reign. It is um, the height of the Persian Empire. The Persians are the ones that came and defeated the Babylonians. Cyrus, who Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 44 and 45, comes along and defeats the Babylonians. And he's the one that's going to release the Jews to go back from exile into Jerusalem, back to their homeland. The exiles will return. And yet, here in Esther, the setting is Persia. And the people being addressed are Jews, the Jews that haven't returned from exile, but still find themselves living dispersed amongst the Persians. Well, this Xerxes character, you know him from the famous movie 300, where Gerard Butler does the, uh, the P90X workout and gets all ripped. And it's the battle of Thermopylae. And, and when Xerxes come and he battles the 300 from Sparta. And in that movie, it's a perfect display of who this Ahasuerus, this Xerxes is. He seems to be a man who's larger than life. He seems to be a man who is at the top of the world. He's the ruler of the known world in that day. In fact, many believed him to be a god. In fact, if you were to ask, ask Xerxes, he believed himself to be a god. Well, the movie 300 tells about that great defeat, and then they go on, and they end up defeating Athens. A year later, they'll get kicked out of Athens, and those are the low moments of Xerxes in this Persian empire. And then this story comes and takes place just on the heels of that defeat at Thermopylae. You know, the description that we're given, if you wanted to know who's in control, the author wants us to gaze at Xerxes. He's going to give us a picture of his kingdom and his throne and his power and his army and his glory and his riches and his honor. Look at with me in uh, beginning back in verse 2. It says, In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and all of his servants. The armies of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. And he throws this massive party. And the text goes on to say that this banquet that he holds, this party that he throws lasts 180 days, six months. And the text tells us the purpose 
was to display all of his wealth and all of his glory. And you can imagine what kind of wealth and glory that this man who stood on the top of the world must have had if it took six months for the people that he invited to this party for them to be able to behold. Well, the story goes on. It is this banquet of glory, and the author's purpose of this is actually this brilliant literary device. In some ways, there is satire that is dripping from the pages of this text. A man who is in complete and total control, a man who even in verse 8, he's able to instruct uh, people. He, he issues an edict on how people are even supposed to drink at his, at his party. At the same time, the text is also giving us, it's this purposeful device, and the text is going to present to us a, in verse 9, an alternate banquet that's happening. And if you'll look in verse 9, it says this, and it says, Queen Vashti also uh, gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So, there's this banquet and this party and this six-month festival that culminates in this seven-day, um, all-out, um, no-holds-barred party. And at the same time, we find that the queen is throwing her own banquet in another part of Susa. Well, the party gets a little bit out of hand. And in verse 10, it says this, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, which is probably an understatement of what was really taking place. It says he commanded uh, the, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring King Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. The party had gotten um, um, out of hand, and, and they'd been drinking for seven days, and all of the sudden Xerxes, in all of his power, in all of his control, the man on top of the world, wants to show off and brag about the beauty of his queen. And so he sends these seven eunuchs to have Queen Vashti come and appear before him, wearing maybe, the text means nothing, but her crown. The man who is in control of everything, the known world, the man who believes himself to be a God, we find that he's not in as much control as he thinks that he is. In verse 12, one of the great moments of this entire story, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned in him. The king who apparently controls everything doesn't have control over his queen. And we are meant as readers to begin to ask, well, if Ahasuerus really isn't in control, who is? Well, the queen has her own banquet. The king makes his request. The queen responds with defiance. It becomes this offense. And the king uh, Ahasuerus, he doesn't know exactly what he's supposed to do. So, what he'll do is he'll call seven wise men to advise him on what it is that he's supposed to do. This man who rules everything calls in the advisors. Well, 
it's a precarious place for these advisors, as you can imagine. And, but one of them has his wits about him. And it's a man named Mamusin. And this man, he comes up and he begins to tell Ahasuerus, Xerxes, says, listen, well, it's not only just an offense against you, king. It's actually an offense against every man in your entire kingdom. And so with that, he begins to persuade the king of the only thing that could be done. Queen Vashti must be expelled. She must be banished and stripped of her of her crown. And not only that, in the height of probably um, the, the greatest overreaction over a bruised ego, Xerxes, there at the end of chapter 1, will send a decree to all of his kingdom, north and south and east and west. He'll have it issued in every language spoken under his rule, that the men are to rule in their own household. Well, we're meant to be smiling at this point. The king who is supposed to be in control, his ego is so easily bruised at the slightest defiance against his rulership. Well, it sets the stage for chapter 2. And what happens in chapter 2 is a preview, is the contrast from the apparent power the apparent um, one who is in control. And chapter 2 is going to usher us in to kind of the valley of weakness. It's going to usher us in to, from, the, from the heights of Xerxes now to the lowest in his kingdom. If you'll look with me beginning in chapter 2, um, from this apparent power to apparent weakness, it begins this way. Chapter 2, verse 1, after these kings... Uh, after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful virgins be sought out for the king. And then what takes place is there is this royal pageant that is, um, begins being underway. These uh, men, these talent scouts, um, led by a, a man named Haggai, will go out into the country, out into all of his empire, and they will begin gathering what they think are the most beautiful girls that they can find, and they will begin to add them to his harem. Part of the training of coming into this harem is that they would spend a year in this beauty training, a year in preparation for what would end up being a night with the king. And that's the story that's being set. It is this one man's seeming control over all of those in his empire. Well, in verse 5 of chapter 2, we're introduced to now the third character of the story. And it says this, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shammai, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who'd been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, uh, carried away with Jehoiakim, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Well, this immediately connects us with a couple of things. One, it connects us with the series we just finished, Habakkuk, where in Habakkuk's day, God is giving him the vision of the mighty Babylon that's going to come and going to judge 
the people of Israel, but ultimately they themselves will be judged. Mordecai was a man who was swept away in the exile. He is given this lineage. What we find here is that this story has to do with God's people. Mordecai is a Jew, and he has a lineage that goes all the way back to the tribe of Benjamin, that God is in the midst of his people. Well, we find out that Mordecai is a, um, a cousin of a woman whom he adopted after her parents had died. In verse 7, it says this, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. And the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. You know, what's interesting about this is that you are introduced to Esther. Now we are at the lowest of the low in the society or the empire of Persia. She's Jewish. She's an orphan. We find out from the text that she's beautiful. And then the text is going to present us with this incredible tension. I want you to see where the tension begins. Look in verse 8 where it says, So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, this was the order in the edict about the beauty pageant. And when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel uh, in the custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young, women, uh, the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not known her people, for, or had not made known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Well, the tension, you probably feel it. Here is a woman who is by her birth and by her lineage, one of the people of God. One of the people of God who hasn't returned from exile but is still living in exile and dispersion in Persia. One who is concealing her identity. One who in every way seems to be appeasing the powers at be. Caught up in appeasing what the world is offering. It appears that this is a woman who finds herself compromised, and whether it is out of survival or out of opportunism, this is a woman who appears in every way to be the exact opposite or antithesis of those whom God called as his children. You know, it's a tension that we're meant to feel. It's a tension that we're meant to be drawn into. You know, one of the things that takes place for Esther, as she's taken, likely against her will, she comes into this situation. She begins to appease those that are in charge and finds herself elevated because of her beauty and because of her skill 
to a high place in the harem of King Xerxes. Now, look at what takes place beginning in verse 12. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Hohazuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil, myrrh, and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in. And in the morning, she would return to the second harem in the custody of Shazgaz, the king's unit who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. You know, it's this reminder that really what her lot was, what she could have expected is that she likely would have gone in, she would have spent her night with the king, she would have been sent off to the second harem, and she would have lived the rest of her days as part of a concubine that was resigned to obscurity. She would not have been allowed to marry, she would not have been allowed to pursue motherhood, she would not have been allowed to pursue anything of her own desires. She would have been locked away in a concubine, never to be called again. That was the fate of most of the women. And, and that was what she had to look forward to, if you will. But picking up in verse 15, it says, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except that Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, um, of the women advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus in his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebah, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight and more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. The king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes in the provinces and gifts and gave gifts with royal generosity. You know, as as this part of Esther's told, we feel the tension of what's taking place. Here is Esther, one of the children of the people of God. She's in the wrong place, and she's living in the wrong time. She has not gone back to exile. She's remained in dispersion. She's a woman that has no parents, been adopted by her cousin, and here she finds herself caught up in, maybe caught up in the world, so opposed to God, and yet she lives with an ambiguity of how is she supposed to respond. You know, in these verses, I think what we have is the hint of the unseen God, hand of God. That, that what is taking place in Esther's life is taking place by a series of what we would call coincidences. But looking back, we would see the providential hand of God. You know, the fact that Queen Vashti would defy her king, 
that, that she would be banished, that a beauty pageant would happen, that they would happen upon Esther, Esther, who's beautiful in form and in grace, that she would find favor with those that were in charge, that she would spend her night with the king, and that her night with the king would be such that the king would fall in love with her, give her the crown, and grant a feast in her favor. You know, the the unseen hand of God carries on in, at the end of chapter 2 when Mordecai finds himself in the right place at the right time to hear about a conspiracy that he's able to tell Esther and she informs the king and Mordecai keeps the king from being assassinated by those who were trying to mount a coup. Again, the unseen hand of God. Well, as we come to the end of chapters 1 and 2, there are a few things that I want to point out about Esther's story. You know, I think the way that the author is writing this is that he means to, to take the story and to draw us into our own story. You know, our own story that includes all of our poor decisions, our story that includes all of our compromises, our story that, that includes all these seemingly ambiguous situations that we find ourselves in, whether morally or spiritually or culturally, and the failures that we know have piled up the road behind us to know what is right, to do what is right. And yet we find ourselves in a place of looking back at one wrong decision after another. You know, it's meant to draw us into our own story. And in doing that, draw us into the story of God's grace. You know, are we so sure that what we see in the visible world is all that there is? We find ourselves so often looking at our circumstances and looking at the wreckage of our life or looking at the, the difficult situation that we find ourselves in, and it is easy to believe that the, only the things that are visible are only the things that are real. And yet what the author of Esther's doing is drawing us into something greater, Drawing us into that which is beyond the visible and behind the scenes. That, that which is beyond the circumstances and moving into the providence of God. See, the story draws us into our own story. When, when God's presence is difficult to perceive, you know, behind seemingly ordinary events is an extraordinary plan of God taking place. The author's wanting us to know that God's silence is not his absence, that his hiddenness is not abandonment, that what is seen is not all that there is. You know, the other thing that I think the author is doing, and when I say author, I mean the big A author here, is that the author is drawing us not only to our own story, but to the story of Jesus. You know, when the disciples walked with Jesus, there were things that they could see, but, but taking place all around them and all the time were all of the things that they couldn't see. They couldn't see and they didn't fully understand until after the resurrection of Jesus. 
You also see where, where real power comes into conflict with real weakness. Where Jesus comes out of glory and out of eternity into history, taking on humanity in all of our weakness and all of our frailty, ultimately becoming all of our sin. It appears that in the Gospels that there's no weaker person when we finally get to the end than Jesus who finds himself uh, nailed to a cross by the mighty Roman Empire. And yet as we pull the veil back, we realize where the real power and the real weakness truly are. You see, in this moment of weakness in Jesus' life, this moment of taking your place and my place, becoming our sin on the cross. In this moment of, of true death that came to him as the punishment for all of our sins, it would appear to be the weakest moment in all of human history. And yet what we know because of the resurrection three days later as Jesus rises from the grave and rises from the dead, that it's the greatest act of power history has ever seen. You know, what it does is it draws us in to not only our story, but to the story of Jesus. And when we're drawn to the story of Jesus, what we see is the incredible, sacrificial, unconditional, unbelievable love of God. You know, when God looked upon us, he, he didn't look upon us and not see our sin. He looked upon us and saw us stained and broken and weak. He saw us compromised and rebellious and exiled. He, he sees us as we are, we come into the world, bound to the world, compromised to the world, living and surviving and compromising and living, making one bad decision after another. We all have a history, a stained history of knowing what's right and doing what's wrong. And yet God, as he looked at us, looked at us with grace, looked at us with compassion, looked at us as a people he set out to redeem. And so because of that, what he does is sends his son in weakness to achieve the greatest power of all, to break free, break us free from the chains of sin and the chains of death and the chains of the world that have us so entangled. In fact, the way that the Bible says it in 1 John chapter 4, it says this, if you want to know what love is, you have to look at the cross. If you want to know what the love of God is, it's that you look at the cross. Because at the cross, what you see is the eternal Son of God who's come to take on all that we are, to die in our place, to sacrifice Himself for all of our sin and all of our wrong and all of our rebellion so that we, we could be transformed into sons and daughters of the living God, that we would know rightly whose children we are. He came to set us free. He came to reconcile us to the God who loves us. 
so often in our life, God's hand will go unseen. And yet what we realize through this story of Esther, what we'll look at over the next several weeks, is that in the midst of things that are ordinary, God is working in extraordinary ways to relay to us, to bring to us, to ensure that we would know his everlasting love. I ask you this morning, are you in a place where your faith is, um, is just barely hanging on? Are, are you in a place this morning where you, you're finding and asking, I wonder where God is in the midst of all of this? I wonder where God is in the midst of my life. I wonder where God is in the midst of all these things that I, I don't know whether to turn left or to turn right. And I wish he would show up with a miracle. I wish he'd send me an email. I wish he'd call me on the phone. And, and wondering, wondering, is God really there? My encouragement to you this morning is that if you would join us in this series on Esther, if you'd spend time drawing into the book, into these words of God, letting it draw you into your story and ultimately into the story of Jesus, that you'd find a hope, a, a faith that is encouraged, a faith that is strengthened, a faith that can trust that God's a, a seeming silence is not his absence, yet he is at work even now, even today, in the ordinary things of your life that ultimately will be revealed as his great glory, his great plan, his salvation for those who trust him. If you would, would you bow with me for a word and prayer? Father, I pray that you would do what only you can do, and that is that you would uh, draw our minds and draw our hearts into the pages of your revealed word. That, that, Father, the literary brilliance of a story like Esther would, would reveal in us the tensions that we all have, would reveal in us the, 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 the places where our faith falters, the, the places where we come to question, are, are you here even at all? And Father, as you draw us into our own stories, would you bring us face to face with the story of your son, Jesus? Would you show in incredible ways to us your love that you have poured out through your only son? And Father, in that, would you, would you grant us the faith to take hold of him? Father, trusting you, that you're working all of these things, all of the ordinary things, all the things that we can see together in the most beautiful, unseen, glorious way. So, Father, we pray this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.